0: And I've used the metaphor of being on the ocean with your surfboard and and a wave is coming along and you didn't create the wave, you didn't create the ocean, you probably didn't make the surfboard. You're just smart enough that when the wave came, you get up and you ride the wave. And that's what happened to me. When the wave went back out and I had my surfboard and I'm paddling back out and there weren't any more waves, I thought I could make the wave. And that's what I tried to do. And I found out it was pretty hard to make a wave. <laughs> I was waiting for the product that I had launched to do well, and no wave came.
1: Welcome to the Seven Hats Podcast. My name is Yuval Selig, and I've been on the entrepreneurial roller coaster for over 20 years. I've experienced it all throughout my journey the grind, burnout, failure, and ultimately success. The turning point for me was realizing that building a successful company is meaningless if you neglect the other significant areas of your life. So today, I'm inviting you to join me on an adventure through those seven areas, what I call the seven hats. Every week, my guests and I will drop valuable insights and pearls of wisdom, helping, motivating, and inspiring you to get your seven hats in order and deliver real impact with meaning. So let's get going. Welcome, Seven Hatters. In this episode, we speak with Marvin Storm and dive deep into hat number four, the entrepreneur, as we contemplate our exit before strapping ourselves on the entrepreneurial roller coaster. 80% of all businesses that are listed for sale never sell, but you don't need to be part of that statistic if you plan your exit from the start. Marvin reminds us that pilots don't pack their parachutes when the engine is on fire, and you shouldn't either. With four decades of experience and not to mention the host of the Business Exit Stories podcast, there is no one better than Marvin to show us the way. So what are we waiting for? Let's get to know Marvin and start packing our parachute before it's too late by welcoming Marvin to the Seven Hats. Marvin, Welcome to The 7 Hats. It's great to be here. I'm looking forward to our chat. Oh, listen, I'm really excited to speak with you today. Part of that is for my audience, and part of it is for selfish reasons. You know, uh, I have a couple of companies that I'm running at the moment, and I'm probably making all the mistakes in the book when it comes to planning for the best exit. I actually just interviewed Mike Fata, the founder of Manitoba Harvest, who exited not too long ago. Not just for one nine-figure exit, but two. Amazing. Which is unusual. Which is unusual. So I'm sure that like me, the seven hatters are also extremely interested in this topic. But before we pack up the parachute and dive into how entrepreneurs can maximize their exit strategies, let's learn a little bit more about Marvin, shall we?
0: Well, I'll try to give you some insight of where this country bumpkin came from.
1: All right, fantastic. (laughs) Let's let's start at the beginning. So tell the Seven Hatters where you're from originally and what childhood looked like.
0: Well, I grew up in a small town in uh, South Dakota, not too far from Mount Rushmore in the Black Hills for those of you that are somewhat familiar with the geography of that part of the world. And I grew up on a, a... you know, the rural part of the town that I lived in. I mean, it was a booming metropolis of about 3,500 people with a large population of ranchers and farmers that surrounded. That was kind of the, our town that I lived in uh, was kind of the commerce hub and the county seat uh, from where I lived. My father was an entrepreneur. He was raised on a ranch, uh, grew up uh, in the middle of nowhere, um, I've been out to the old uh, Storm family home, homestead, and I can remember the first time uh, in my adult life that I went back and spent some time there. Uh, what was so s- stark or amazing to me is uh, the ranch was—it's literally in the middle of nowhere. Wow! Uh, you know, 175, 100 miles from the, na- the nearest town and the, the winters in that part of the world in south dakota on the plains there they can get pretty brutal uh, a lot of wind uh, a lot of snow drifting snow uh, my grandfather was uh, a, a rancher who raised uh, horses and and sheep and uh, my father you know his job during the summers was to herd sheep and he had a little uh, trailer house uh, Kind of like an Airstream trailer that he spent months at a time out, to, you know, very desolate, lonely with his sheepdog and, uh, you know, herding sheep, taking care of them, shooting coyotes. And, <laughs> you know, that was the, the world that my father grew up in. You know, if something broke you know, on the ranch, uh, you didn't drive to town or go down to the hardware store and buy something to fix it. You had to figure it out and uh, m- make it work because of that my dad uh, became quite uh he had an aptitude for mechanics i often think if he went on with his education he had ended up a mechanical engineer or something like that he was very bright very mechanically adept and when he moved to town after my uh, grandfather passed away he was the only son that stayed on the ranch uh, was just 17 18 years old at the time and with my grandmother and they just had to move to town. So they sold the, the, the homestead and moved to town. And, and he got a job as a mechanic and eventually left that uh, employment environment and opened up his own shop. And I can remember as a kid going out to his shop, which was out, outside of town, walking out for the couple of miles that it was and spending my summers there washing parts and watching him work and rolling under the car with these creepers and a cigarette hanging out out of his side (laughs) of his mouth and grease on his face and sweat pouring, uh, you know, and the, hot summers there that were there, very hot, you know, you know, 90, degrees out and he's in his shop, with heavy, co- you know, coveralls on and, you know, working on everything from diesel trucks to farm equipment, to cars, pickups, you know, what you name it, uh, he could fix it. So that's the kind of the world that I grew up in. My mom was a bookkeeper. She had a full-time job during the day uh, and then kept books on the evenings and weekends for my dad. And uh, they worked hard. They were blue collar, you know, hardworking uh, fabric that this country is built on and established on. And, and over the years, uh, you know, he built up his business, had a number of mechanics working for him and expanded his garage, built his own building and, and uh, later added a towing service. And so he had a lot of entrepreneurial pursuits. And I saw the ups and the downs of that life of being an entrepreneur. Um, he worked two jobs. He actually Uh, When he first opened up and left employment as a mechanic and opened up his own shop, uh, he took another job to make sure there was always bread on the table uh, working for the railroad. So he would go down. He had these big diesel engines uh, that needed fuel. And in the winter, they would sand. They would put sand on board these big diesel engines. And the sand would be let out in front of the steel wheels give him traction when the there would be ice on the tracks. And uh, so he would go down and spend uh, five to seven hours uh, every night, uh, five days a week, you know, working and fueling and get and into switch yards, moving the engines around, getting them ready for the engineers the next day. And then he'd, you know, after midnight, he would come home and and be up at uh, 5.30, 6 o'clock to go go into the shop and work. And he worked six days a week. And uh, vacations were not something that I was really familiar with, only taking two my whole childhood or teenage years. Uh, just wasn't part of the agenda. That's kind of the world that I grew up in. And my dad, you know, really didn't want me to follow his footsteps. He didn't want, he wanted me to get an education, which I did. I got my degree in accounting and went to work for a big four accounting firm and and uh, after a few years doing that i was playing pickup basketball with a group uh, you know for several years we would meet at four o'clock on tuesday afternoons and we would play two hours two and a half hours of of pickup basketball and i met a guy there that later became a co-founder to me and uh, you know we'd play these basketball games and afterwards we would talk shop and just Talk about what's going on in our individual lives. And before you know it, we were turning in our resignations (laughs) and striking out on our own. We had rented a 300 square foot office and and an office building downtown. And I live in the San Francisco Bay Area. And uh, we had two desks and two phones, and the desks faced each other. And uh, we were in business. And we built up that business, which was in kind of the equipment leasing uh, world. And uh, we just happened to be in the right place at the right time. Wow. Uh, which isn't uh, good for a young entrepreneur. I was like 27 years old at the time when we, when we struck out on our own. Things went well. Uh, we grew that to 70, 60, 70 people and two floors of an office building in downtown. And, and uh, I really thought it was pretty smart. Things were going pretty well and uh, making a lot of money. A lot more than my peers at the time. You know, I just thought that I had it figured out until I didn't. The economy changed uh, the tax laws changed we were somewhat reliant on you know investment tax credits and and when we would uh you know structure these leasing transactions and uh, extract the tax benefits out of them and at the time and uh, the the tax laws changed the economy changed and uh, then i wasn't so smart anymore uh, bi- business that used to roll in and uh, we didn't have to do much to get it all of a sudden became very challenging. Wow.
1: And uh, I, th- I thought I could figure it out. You know,
0: I just thought that uh,
1: <laughs> we all get to that, to that place. And I, I can't wait to delve a little bit deeper into the, that side of the business. Uh, a couple more questions kind of going back a little bit. So did you have any siblings or were you a, an only child?
0: No, I, uh, I had uh, two brothers, uh, one quite a bit younger than myself, like seven, eight, eight eight, nine years younger than myself. I had a brother that was about my same age. And uh, yeah, we, um, three boys and, um, you know, parents that were both working hard. And uh, so we had a lot of independence. Uh, For those in your audience that are a little bit older, like myself, that remember the Andy Taylor and Opie Taylor, you know, from Mayberry Uh on the Andy Andy Griffith show, where at the opening scene, Andy Taylor, the sheriff, and he's five, six-year-old son are headed out with their fishing poles to go fishing. That was kind of the, the world that I grew up in. A lot of independence, we would disappear in the morning during the summers, and uh, we would roll in, you know, seven, eight o'clock at night, uh, completely on our own, you know, doing whatever we would want to do. And so it was, it was a, a very, uh, I think, hardy uh, and uh, freedom-laced uh, childhood.
1: Did your brothers uh, end up becoming entrepreneurs or what, what are they doing? You no, know, my uh, both of my
0: brothers actually uh, got involved in some some form or another in the automotive field, uh, working as mechanics or in parts stores and things of that nature uh, and involved in retailing of cars and and things of that nature. And one of my brothers uh, had a muffler shop at, for a few years and uh, before he went back and went to work and managing some hardware stores, but they stayed in that part of the world. You know, when I turned 18, all you saw were
1: my taillights. I was headed out of town. <laughs> did you, that, that's a, that's hysterical. So they followed in your, in your dad's footsteps and you just jetted out. But did you grow up in a religious household? And, and, and if you did, how did that influence you uh, early on?
0: Well, I think the influence is that I understood um, the peaks and valleys of uh, entrepreneurship. I didn't have any rosy colored eyeglasses of not working hard or you know, that you just made a bunch of money. Although early in my career, that's kind of how it was. But, uh, you know, in subsequent businesses, I had the challenge of meeting payroll and the stress that comes with being an entrepreneur when you don't know if you're going to make that next payroll and beg, borrowing and stealing to to make sure that it happens. And and then being blindsided, as I said, things beyond your control sometimes take over. And, uh, you know, you try to figure it out uh sometimes you do sometimes you don't
1: so you did grow up in a religious household is that correct
0: yeah i did uh
1: my household
0: wasn't necessarily religious my dad and mother weren't religious at the time but i had that sort of proclivity and sort of drifted in that
1: way and then you went on a mission to South Africa at that point early on. Was that before you started your business career or was that during?
0: That was I was 19 years old, 20 years old at the time. I spent almost three years uh, in Southern Africa and South Africa. What was then Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, Mozambique, you know, Namibia, and some places like that. Uh, I spent uh, time roaming the country in that part of the world. And it was really an education. I uh, learned how third world countries function and the economies in that part of the world and the poverty that I saw. Some of the happiest people on the world didn't have 10 cents to rub together, you know, and uh, they were just happy people. It created a, a lasting impression on me and has always made grateful. I remember uh, returning to the U.S. as a um, 22-year-old you know, at the time and um i literally got down in at jfk uh, and kissed the asphalt i was so great so grateful to be back in the u.s you know when i i I really gained an understanding of some of the politics in that part of the world when there was apartheid uh, in south africa at the time and some of the inequities there racial inequities economic inequities Coming from this country, we, for those that don't make it outside and don't live in other countries, we really have a great underappreciation yeah. for the. Uh, structure politically and economically and culturally that we have in this country. We're not perfect, uh, but it, uh, in in my opinion, we have it. We just underappreciate the liberties that w- and freedoms that we have in this country. We just take them for granted.
1: Yeah, I find it so amazing. I just interviewed Don Larson. He's the owner of uh, Sunshine Nut Company. And what he does, mm-hmm. he gives 90% of his profits back to the Mozambique, community where he actually resides right Mm -hmm. now. And him and I were speaking about the poverty there, but also the amazing individuals who find some sort of peace and happiness where they are. And in the U.S., you know, we get pissed off if our cheeseburger comes without cheese, you know. And so (laughs) we just we we totally don't don't get what it's like to live in, you know, communist countries or really poor, impoverished uh, places. And and I think that's that's amazing if you have that experience. That's really cool.
0: Yeah, I've been to Mozambique and it's uh, it's a great country and there are some you know it is a challenging environment for a lot of people living there
1: uh was the dream to always become an entrepreneur uh, while you were growing up kind of seeing your dad or did you have a different dream
0: no i um i didn't really envision that path for myself although i was always entrepreneurial in college i got involved in a couple of my startups or businesses that i tried and some were successful some weren't but uh, no, I I thought I was going to get an education. I, you know, went into the accounting field, and then was going to go get an MBA, and and was really headed on the corporate track of uh, becoming a you know, a corporate minion. I mean, that's how I envision it because that's generally when you go to college. uh, In most cases, not all, but most cases, your professors and counselors that coach you along the way, it's all about uh, getting your degree, learning how to interview, sprucing up that resume, you know, getting a job. Uh, I think schooling for uh, not so much these days with places that have entrepreneurial programs and some of the great universities in this country that have forged, this path of entrepreneurship as uh, uh, alternative careers that didn't exist when I was coming through school, and so my my path was you know really geared toward becoming an employee with a, a large or well-known company. And but that DNA I think is kind of was in kind of imprinted on who I was, as I said you know when I actually was in that world and. In the grind, and accounting can, you know, during the audit season and tax seasons, and can become, you know, long hours and and a lot of hard work in a desk oriented environment and not a lot of creativity. I guess my creativity was somewhat stifled. So my my genetic imprinting of entrepreneurship kind of eventually emerged, and uh, uh, I, I I took the leap. I mean, it didn't make any sense. My father in law just about. Hung me because I couldn't understand, just could not understand why I'd walk out of a good career path and, and good paying job to strike out on my own. And I went for you know, several years without any significant income and it was a lot of pressure.
1: I can imagine. I mean, I also went corporate out of school. You first you went to school, then you had you went on a mission, right? And and then you went
0: corporate? No, I, I went through a year of school and then took a couple three about three years off, uh, three full school years off and uh, then returned and got my degree and then jumped in jumped
1: into uh, into into a accounting mm-hmm. firm and so you know you're, you're speaking about taking that leap and that's a really difficult leap for someone in the corporate space And i had to take it myself because i was corporate what made you take that leap what was what was the that moment that you knew that you had to move
0: well you know that's a great question um i don't know you know uh, i guess it was finding a soulmate. You know, someone that uh, we were just uh, four or five years apart in age. He's a little bit older than I was, and we had the same family composition. Uh, We each had kids and same, but same age, and and uh, just just talking and dreaming about doing our own thing took on a life of its own. Chatter, you know, after playing ball and being all sweaty and everything, and just you know hanging out and chatting, and eventually turned into you know weekend meetings and. Those turned into lunches during the week. And uh, before you know it, we're, as I said, uh, figuring out what we could do together. And then taking that leap. I mean, it made no sense financially. I can tell you that much. No sense financially. I had two kids at the time and one on the way and, uh, you know, house payments. And we. Had, I just moved into a, a, a new home and and was following, you know, kind of the, the trajectory that you would have for someone that's a few years into their career. And prospects look pretty good. And, uh, and then to take a left turn. Uh, without stopping at the stoplight you know and heading down that path and uh, although it was kind of skinny for a couple of years things picked up yeah. and so you know after a few years we thought i'm oh, pretty smart i made a good decision you know here and was able to create something out of nothing
1: and how cool is that i love uh, i love that was your wife supportive
0: oh yeah she's uh, fortunate on that and um, not all of my friends have been so fortunate, but no, I got a great woman and uh, uh, she's always been supportive uh, on every aspect of everything. Very, very few issues on that end, and which can be a big issue when, you know, you're working all those hours and things. And I did work long hours and come home late. Early on, I did a lot of traveling and gone weeks at a time and she was home with the kids and it was a challenge sometimes. And uh, sometimes the sledding doesn't always go that well on the home front because, you know, you have these seasons in your life where you do have to take care, create that imbalance in your life for a period of time because they're just have to focus to make things work. And if you don't, things can get pretty ugly. The challenge and the mistake I think a lot of people make, and you probably have seen this and knowing a little bit about you, you know, where you're going to go through this uh, peaks and valleys and burnout and and things of that nature. uh, It's really hard to self-correct and adjust. And if you don't recalibrate at some point in time and you're burning the proverbial, you know, light at both ends of the tunnel, both emotional, physical, and mental strain can... And put not only pressure on yourself, but your family and kids. So, if there is a regret I have in my life, is that uh, my kids, uh, for a portion of their upbringing, were shortchanged on having you know me around. Uh, I just was not around, and that was a choice that I made. If I had it to do over again, I would recalibrate and reorganize my priorities because. They're only young once. And although they turned out great, it, it could have been differently.
1: Did you reconcile things over time with your kids?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I, <laughs> I've i shared profusely with them my my regrets, you know, that I was an absentee father a uh, portion of while they were growing up. So the compensating factor, though, was that I had such a great wife and uh, she never complained, never put me on a guilt trip. She just supported and uh, filled in where she needed to fill in because of that. The kids turned out if I would had a, you know, a different situation there, it probably wouldn't have, have uh, evolved
1: the way that it did. Well, you know, the seven hatters that are listening. That's why we have hat number three. The servant It's the relationship with others. Not only is it important, but it's also crucial for the entrepreneur to get the support from their family. And if you don't pay attention or at least for a long period of time, don't pay attention to your support system. Um, it's gonna be hard to to find fulfillment. So, as an adult, you started a business. What was that business? Well,
0: my first uh, venture was, as I said, in the equipment leasing field, and uh, we did a lot of syndication, you know, at that time, and packaging of of leases. Uh, it was a good business, you know. It wasn't it wasn't a business that required going into the shop and you know working on the floor and or retail location or you know something like that. It was. Uh, just a paper mill, you know, you documented things and, you know, a lot of agreements and syndication documents and things of that nature. But I, I learned a lot. Um, I learned what I didn't know and some of the management skills when you start scaling a business, and some of your audience out there knows, if you don't have experience in that, you kind of have to learn in the trenches. And sometimes it can be a painful learning experience, an expensive one. Yep. And I went through those uh, iterations in my management ability and style. I remember I launched a, a product once that didn't do well. And uh, I happened to be walking down the hall and my director, my marketing BP was in the office and there were a couple of people and he was chatting and I stopped outside of his door and they didn't see me standing there and they were talking about Marv's Follies that I had put so much effort into this and I didn't do the adequate market research. I just thought I knew better. It's one of those situations where I thought that the market was ready for the product and uh, I just pushed ahead without doing my homework. Didn't work out well. It was very expensive, kind of a flop. And I can remember standing outside of the door, and it was uh, it, it was a painful a painful pill to swallow that my own team uh, were not as vocal as they were, you know, talking and amongst themselves. Uh, they weren't as vocal sharing their feelings with me, which I wish they would have. Mm. I don't know if I would have listened or not, uh, but. Uh, it was, it was a painful pill to swallow as they were chatting about this and uh, laughing and uh, at my expense. I can remember, you know, going home that evening, just, you know, in deep thought of what they had said. And it was, I come to the realization that now I need to pull the plug on this and stop the bleeding uh, that and that 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 has served me well that experience served me well in the future where i was more thoughtful and didn't charge into the barrage of gunfire thinking that i was going to overwhelm the competition you know it's kind of like picket's charge you know you're just committed to the end result and um, haven't adequately thought about what it's gonna to take to get to the other side. And sometimes you don't make it. And that particular time I didn't make it. So was that the franchise business? That was pre-franchise. That was uh, kind of a startup that we launched and, and grew. As I said, it, it, we did very well for eight to 10 years in that business and uh, your audience knows uh, the world changes. You yeah. know, there's nothing that stays constant very long. and in business and uh it didn't and as the world started to change you know we tried to adapt and you know i I, i've often i've often said that i happen to be in the right place at the right time and i've used the metaphor of being on the ocean with your surfboard and and a wave is coming along and you didn't create the wave you didn't create the ocean you probably didn't make the surfboard you're just smart enough that when the wave came, you get up and, and you ride the wave. Yeah. And that's what happened to me. And uh, when the wave went back out, the water went back out, and I had my surfboard and I'm paddling back out, and there weren't any more waves, I thought I could make the wave. Mm. And that's what I tried to do. And I found out it was pretty hard to make a wave.
1: Yes. <laughs> you
0: know? Wow, I love and, that. Uh, you know? And so I was waiting for the product that I had launched to do, to do well. And no wave came, couldn't quite, quite figure out why, but uh, because the market wasn't there, you know, and uh, the demand did not pull the product through expensive lesson, but
1: Did you, did you lose it all? Or were you able to su- no, successfully exit no, in some perspective? No, no, we
0: didn't lose, you know, it was tough sledding because we were committed and a large part of our revenue was gone and we were trying to replace it. And it became such that we eventually, uh, you know, concurrent with all of this is that we were getting older. My partner was a few years older, as I mentioned, and his goals and aspirations sort of changed and and I was younger and, and really wanted to move in a different direction. And, and we just agreed to agree that it was time to kind of exit out of the business and that, that's what we did we we kind of uh, decided that it was time to move on and and we did and i went left and he went right <laughs> and we're still great friends today and you know we just pursued a different career path after that uh, and
1: so you uh, pursued franchising right after that
0: yeah i had done in the um uh, leasing business, I did quite a bit in myself in the franchise environment, you know, providing leases and things of that in that world. And I just got intrigued with the whole process of uh, how franchising worked. And as a business model, it's uh, quite an innovation, actually, you know, it's uh, Using other people's capital to build a brand, and you get the it has a good mix of entrepreneurship because they're the classification of people out there that want to be in business for themselves, captain their own ship, uh, but they don't have the tools really that a founder entrepreneur, a startup entrepreneur has. Uh, there's different skill set between an executor entrepreneur and a startup entrepreneur. A startup entrepreneur is creative they're highly uh, motivated and you know can stare into the abyss and not blink envision something that doesn't exist and make it pull it through to reality where there's another type of entrepreneur that you know comes out of the corporate environment tired of that world and Uh, They have really good skills, have developed those talents of execution, management, you know, sometimes in the sales and marketing arena or maybe in the financial arena or the operational arena. uh, And they bring those skills to entrepreneurship and franchising uh, can be a good fit in that situation where the model has been developed and it takes a high degree of execution to take the model into a new market a uh, new geography perhaps opening up and a building a brand in in a, in a market where you, all you have to do is paint by numbers because the model has already been developed and you have to you know execute uh, that model in a new market and uh, build the brand in that market then That's a different skill set than an entrepreneur that is a startup founder entrepreneur a lot of times. They can be overlapping skills, but the stage of how a business model evolves and is built is different uh, in a franchise than it is a startup model.
1: You know, for me, the worst point in my experience, I was on the bathroom floor in fetal position sucking my thumb. Uh, Did you ever have that emotional rock bottom Um, or maybe more than one? But I'm assuming you at least had one.
0: Oh, yeah. I think every entrepreneur that scales a business has those looking over the chasm. I don't think i ever made it to the bathroom floor like you did but uh, i had my dark moments you know when you just don't see a way out you have accumulated uh, debt and uh, things aren't going well and uh, key people leave and competition enters the marketplace and you just don't see a way out and uh, that's when that's when the stress if you're in in my case i was raising a family you know i had kids getting ready to go to college and uh you know the pressures of that and different things that are going on and things go sideways on you beyond your control Uh, and uh, you can see that uh, this house of cards figuratively speaking that you've built that is morphing into a real structure Becomes very wobbly, and you don't know if everything is going to collapse around you. Yeah. So, I, and, and, and it's those stressful situations that put the gray hair on, on your head.
1: You know, I have some gray hair, you can see. Oh, I I do too, my friend. I do too. I'm losing hair too. So it's not just gray. (laughs) But, you know, it's it's amazing how many people, you know, 2008 and COVID experienced these, this rocky house of cards Mm -hmm. uh, and they just have to get through it. But you did, right? So you successfully exited your Uh, franchise um, business and then what's there to do after franchising what was next for you
0: well um, I exited on two levels in franchising I had my regional franchise concepts and the opportunity came to acquire one of the franchise companies that I was a regional for and uh, going from a franchisee regional franchisee to becoming the actual franchisor and I, I transitioned into that world, exiting you know some of these these regional franchises and acquiring the company, and then spitting out uh, a, a separate company from the company I acquired, and then you know exiting that. And so uh, after my this last exit uh, a few years ago, that's when I pulled up. Yeah, I was in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, and you know, left that, you know, rather hustle bustle part of the world and um, moved up to the Sierra foothills, which is on the, if any one of your audience are familiar with this part of the world, it's on the way up to Lake Tahoe, which is a spectacularly beautiful place and much more rural living than I am right now. And I really thought I would just uh, kind of wind it down, uh, move from the fast lane over to the slow lane. and. (laughs) And uh, I made that transition across the different lanes and, uh, and I found that being in the slow lane isn't all it's cracked up to be. So I got to thinking about you know, my career, um, the choices are do something different, start something over. But I just got to thinking about the different types of exits that I'd had. And this last one, which involved private equity and boards of directors, and and it was at a scale that I just wasn't all that familiar with. And if I'd have been more dialed in, in fact, if I'd have been more dialed in on any of the exits, because what an entrepreneur does, at least this is the philosophy that i I've evolved, and my thought process has evolved. Is that entrepreneurs become very good at what they do because they do it every day, and they face different challenges, and they're able to continue to knock off the rough edges and continue to hone their craft, and they become really quite a, an expert at what they do. Some of them become world class, and uh, when it comes to monetizing all that expertise that you is encapsulated into a business entity a brand and you want to monetize that uh, because you don't do it every day you tend not to be very good at it or you don't anticipate all the things and all of the components of putting together a solid uh, and smooth uh, transition to exit out of your business and most importantly is to monetize and optimize uh, the value that you've created you may have created a lot of value and depending on who your buyer is, they may be able to take advantage of your inexperience, the structuring of the deal, because they do it every day all the long. along. Because you got to remember on the other side of the table, depending on who the buyer is, this is what they may be, what they do for their living. And they become like you as an expert in your craft and your service and product. Uh, You're really good at it. Well, their service and their expertise is in deal structuring. Yours may or may not be. And so you are at sometimes somewhat at a disadvantage when you're sitting across the table from either the money people who are structuring the deal and providing the capital or an acquisition team for a large company that uh, this is what they get due and they're bonused and struck and compensated. For their rate of return and the amount, number of deals that they close or whatever other metrics, depending on the fund or the buyer, uh, they're compensated uh, that way. And, and so they may be really good at giving you what you ask for as far as the dollar amount of your business. But in structuring the deal as such is that you may never see some of those proceeds.
1: Wow.
0: Uh, one of the best ways or the more crafty ways that that happens is what is called an earnout. And sometimes those earnouts, meaning that they want you to stay around to help with the transition of the business or help manage the business for a period of time, but they structure the metrics for you to qualify for being paid that earnout amount. I'll give you, an we'll just pick a number here. Say you sell your business for $10 million or a million dollars or whatever it is, and 20% is in earnout. And that's going to be over four years. So you're going to get 5% a year over four years. But that 5% payout is really contingent on profitability. Hitting certain profitability marks or gross margin amounts or whatever the metrics are, but those are structured in such a way is that it's almost impossible for you to meet them. If it's tied to profitability, and you think, well, that's fine, I've I've met those profitability figures, and you did that while you were sitting in the captain's chair, making budgetary decisions and being able to control uh, spend and control personnel and control uh, expansion and scaling and things that you kind of. Became really good at and growing your business, but all of now you've sold your company and now you're an employee of that company and your earnout is tied to meeting certain metrics. But lo and behold, uh, the decision making process is removed from your desk to somebody else's desk and they're compensated on different metrics than you're being compensated on the earnout. And they may be compensated on meeting their margins or their profitability and which is in conflict with you being able to meet your growth targets or your profitability. And so they remove a marketing budget, cut it by 50%. And you're not going because of that change, or they remove personnel or they replace personnel that isn't as competent as they should be. And so these things that you're no longer in control of affect your ability to achieve that earnout, And so what you were expecting, that 20%, kind of disappears or a majority of it disappears and so as a lot of entrepreneurs will tell you is that whatever you accept on selling your company whatever you get in cash just kind of figured that's what you're going to get and that if the earnout is able to be achieved it's just frosting on the cake uh, a lot of times it doesn't have to be that way if you understand how to structure a deal so that you aren't tied to things that you don't control you're tied to things that you can control and uh, much higher probability of meeting those are not targets. So it's things like that, that you don't anticipate or don't under, you know quite see how all the pieces fit together. And that's why I say entrepreneurs become really good at their craft. But when it comes to exiting, they only stand at the plate once or twice, unless they're a serial entrepreneur, they do it all the time. Uh, then they know the, they know the process and how to structure these deals. But for those entrepreneurs, which is most of us get one, two, three shots in our career to stage an exit.
1: I guess I was lucky because I had an earnout out opportunity come my way uh, for Promomash, uh, the current company that I'm, I'm running and uh, look good on paper but quickly I said no. So, Mm -hmm. so you're, you're not playing golf, right? You're kind of learning about this stuff, but, but what are you doing with, with your life now?
0: Well, as I said, uh, I just got to thinking about the whole process of if entrepreneurs had the ability to see around the corner when it comes to their exits and be a little bit more anticipatory on what to expect and that would probably be something that would be of a valuable service. And somehow I could give back to what I've accomplished in my career. Uh, I'd be able to help others along that path. And that would be a good feeling and a good thing to do. And so I decided to start this podcast. And uh, there are a lot of uh, podcasts out there that interview entrepreneurs that have sold or exited their businesses and they share their story. And, and those are, I listen to a lot of them you know myself but i took a little bit different tact i i said you know the people that are the deal makers the mergers and acquisitions uh, advisors investment bankers uh, business brokers cpas wealth managers you know transaction attorneys those people that are in the transaction flow and deal with uh, business exits all the time that's what they do for a living. And they have a whole portfolio full of clients and stories and deals that they have been involved in uh, that they can you know bring to the table and share the good, the bad stories, some of the real ugly stories that they've been involved in, and the takeaways, why they went well, why they didn't. Anyone listening to those stories, they can avoid kind of the minefield uh, so they don't have to... You know it go through the painful learning experiences they can learn from other people's stories and other people's experiences so i started this pad, podcast called business exit stories uh each episode has four deal stories a couple that went well a couple that didn't and as told by the people that were involved in it and in all different sizes of businesses different industries uh different composition of types of entrepreneurs, you know, partnerships and sole proprietors and family operations and corporate deals and all sorts of stuff. And it's just a a good read. And and so that's what I've been doing for the last several years. And uh, I've just thoroughly enjoyed it. Like you uh, hosting a podcast, you get to talk to a lot of interesting people and you can add value. You can actually change people's lives because there's nothing more heart-wrenching than to hear a story of an entrepreneur that spent decades, if not a lifetime of hard work, building their company, and then on the last lap, drop the baton uh, and uh, exit with very little, in some cases, uh, in real tragic situations where they never were able to exit and had to wind down their business uh, because of mistakes they made during the planning process that they totally unavoidable but they they just either for their ego or for other reasons made mistakes that uh, turned out uh, to be rather catastrophic for themselves or families or employees and uh, can help avoid a few of those situations uh, you've made a difference in the world so that that's kind of how i approach it and then you know, after doing the podcast for a while, I started getting feedback, you know, kind of what's next type of thing. And so I thought, you know, I'll just put all these stories and kind of what I've learned over the years into a book. And so I used the, the metaphor of pack your parachute mm-hmm. uh, based on the concept that pilots don't pack their parachute when the engines are on fire. And uh, they have that parachute packed and ready to go because you never know when you're running a business what can go sideways. You may get a, unexpected medical diagnosis. You may go have a partner that you get in conflict with or competition enters the marketplace, technology changes, whatever. If you have that parachute ready to pack, uh, you're much more likely to be able to step away from your business more quickly and more profitably than if you don't. And so I'm in, a, in the process of writing that book right now. And, and so life's been good. I just enjoy the whole process of providing some insight to, for people. Sometimes the largest asset that they have or ever will have is the business they built. And you just want to make sure that people can monetize all that hard work.
1: I love that. And the book's coming out next year, right? You're on right? Track. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. It's hard to write a book. But <laughs> <laughs> well, harder than I thought. Exactly. <laughs> sounds so, good in theory. <laughs> sounds good in theory. I know. Uh, I'm in the process of thinking and trying to do it. And it's it's definitely harder than I thought as well. So, what advice would you give a corporate individual who is looking to jump ship and become an entrepreneur? Because you wrote your that's uh, parachute is not your second your first book. It's your second. The first one was all about the transition from corporate to entrepreneurship, right?
0: Yeah, I think that it's especially difficult. I think for corporate folks, uh, having been one of those myself in my career. Uh, to to make that shift. I think that it's really challenging because you don't necessarily have the DNA footprint uh, to be an entrepreneur, to do the startup thing. And uh, so you have to be very careful if you migrate from corporate into a startup situation, because generally people coming out of the corporate world are mid-career or well into their career anyway, and they're risking a lot you know getting involved in a startup or something and and so my advice is that you make that transition very cautiously uh, you take time to evaluate it and to assess if you're going to be adequately capitalized to be able to pull that off and that, uh, if things don't go well that you that you have your options you know there for you the the, the theory of burning all the ships so that you have no no option. Sounds good in theory. But uh, if you have a family and everything, uh, they can become kind of dicey sometimes.
1: Try not to tell your boss to uh, to shove it when you're exiting <laughs> the, the, uh, his office or her office. So what was that? I was going to say uh, I've made I've, I've made it a practice for whenever I
0: have a transition point in my life, not to tick people off, you know, because you never know when your paths are going to cross again.
1: You never know. Um, so four decades of experience. And we just received a a lesson on what to do for a corporate uh, individual going into the uh, entrepreneurial world. What is the biggest lesson after four decades that you'd pass to someone who's in their first of their decades as an entrepreneur?
0: Well, I often get the question, and it's a valid question, what in the heck should I worry about exiting my business now when that isn't going to happen for years down the road? I'm too busy building my business to worry about how I'm going to exit it. I get it. I understand that sentiment. However, you're going to spend a lot of time building your company, your brand, hundreds if not tens of thousands of hours of hard work. Mm -hmm. Uh, you, You want to make sure that at the end of the journey, uh, that there is a pot of gold, you know, that there's something that you can monetize. And that generally doesn't happen unless there's some forethought given to it. Generally speaking, those that uh, start getting into the frame of mind of thinking about what they're building and that, that one, at some point in time, they're going to want to monetize that work. And for that to happen, to be able to, to optimize that exit is that you're going to have to start planning in advance. And so this whole thing of why do I want to worry about it now? I'm busy building my business. Uh, it's not necessarily that you're going to spend a lot of time in total hours working on an exit plan, uh, but it's more of a thought process. It's a philosophy. It's how you think about decisions in your business. And that comes down to You know, if you're a business that has a lease that's a key component to how you operate your business and you're signing a five year lease or a three year lease with three five year options, whatever the situation, you want to make sure that you think about how that lease is going to impact your exit. What happens if you sell the business in five years, six years, seven years? How is that lease going to be viewed or benefit the the transition of you out of the business and there are some real sad stories on the my podcast business Exit stories of where a lease killed the deal because it was not assignable or loan documents or the people you hire and employment agreements that you have with those folks Uh, it's not that you spend a lot of time in total time commitment to planning an exit but it's that thought process that you incorporate into your decision-making process things that are going to impact an exit down the road and that becomes and over time these things accumulate and will either facilitate uh, a smooth transition and an exit or they will become problematic when someone is going through their due diligence checklist that's buying your business. And they'll come back with this long list of things that create risk in their business to the transaction. And that risk always translates into a reduced valuation on your business or some very restrictive terms on your transition of your business. And so if you you know, get into that frame of mind and you start lining things up that aren't going to be problematic when you exit your business, you're going to be in a much stronger position to optimize the value of your business down the road.
1: So if you build it, they're not always going to come your way. And I think there's a sobering statistic that you mentioned out of all the businesses that are on sale, you know, currently as an example, and and, at a single time, 80% of them Never get sold. Is that statistic still valid? Or? Yeah,
0: that's that's a statistic that's endured over a fairly long period of time. It's not generally known or talked about. And I, I know people that will, you know, kind of uh, have a discussion around those statistics because it is all businesses, large, small uh, businesses, including one man shops and things of that nature. But the point is that there's a lot of businesses out there that just never find a buyer. And so they just end up winding down and closing shop. and uh, Or if they are sold, it's not the type of exit that uh, was anticipated or thought that they would have. And generally speaking, it's all avoidable. Positioning a business for a successful and profitable exit is not rocket science. But it is not uh, easy to do either. It just, it's a process. It's like anything else. It's a process. If you understand the process and you follow the things that are critical to that process and you do it over a period of time, things will generally work out well. And you'll be in that 15 to 20% of businesses that do sell. And those that do sell, you'll be in the top 5, 10% of those that do sell as far as optimizing the value. And it's not that hard, but if you totally ignore it and you don't worry about it, the outcome is generally not that favorable. You may get lucky, as I say, you may be in the right place at the right time and you may have a home run, but statistically, that's not how the data lines
1: up. Well, I'm glad we were introduced and I've learned so much during this podcast. And I know that we're going to continue our relationship because I have a baby And I need to exit one of these days and I need to do it uh, in the right, uh, in the right fashion. So uh, we'll be speaking, but I'd like to close out my interview with the following question. Who did you have to stop being and who did you need to become to manifest your current success?
0: Well, I think that's a great question. And um, it's, it's introspectively, as I've looked, uh, you know, over my time that I've evolved as a person and as an entrepreneur, uh, the thing that I think has benefited me the most as far as changing from what I was to what I could become or want to be uh, is just realizing that my success is integrally tied to me facilitating the success of others. If you think about it, well, an entrepreneur, if they can help their their team, their employees achieve their dreams, and, you know, become happier and financially more successful. Uh, it's inevitable that the probability of the entrepreneur then achieving his dreams and accomplishing his goals just almost becomes a laydown. because when you help others achieve their dreams, generally speaking, yours will be uh, achieved as well and probably much more than you ever thought possible.
1: A man after my own heart. I love that. So tell the seven hatters where they can find you, where the podcast is, what else you're offering.
0: Well, anyone that loves podcasts, I love podcasts. I spend hours and hours a week listening to podcasts because I gain insights from folks like yourself that uh, have so much to share and bring on guests to share. And, you know, it's uh, wherever you get your podcast, just go to Business Exit Stories. Uh, Search your podcast that way on Apple Podcast or Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. And also, uh, I get a lot of feedback over the years that I've been doing this uh, and kind of what's next. If I wanted to start thinking about an exit, so I offer a kind of a report that I've uh, prepared. Uh, and that report uh, can be found just by going to the website, businessexitstories.com forward slash report, the numeral two, uh, uh, forward slash report, the number two. And that'll direct you to um, a page where you can download uh, this report. And it just gives you kind of an overview on how you can dramatically increase the value of your business without breaking too much of a sweat. And to give you some really insights that you can start this process of thinking about your business exit and not taking a lot of time doing it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And once they get on your uh, mailing list, then when the book comes out, you'll let everybody know. Absolutely. Yeah, that'd be fun. and definitely check out the piece that the Marvin is providing because parachute is also an acronym and we didn't get a chance to really speak about it in, in this podcast. But uh, the, uh, the PDF has everything you need to know about it. So a little cliffhanger, get people to, uh, to become interested in, and learn more. Marvin, it was such a pleasure having you on the show. Uh, I will put all the links, including your LinkedIn page, in the show notes. I appreciate your wisdom. I appreciate your years of service, and I'm so happy that you know you made the mistakes that you made so you can help others avoid theirs. Thank you for coming on The 7 Hats.
0: It's been delightful. I appreciate the input that you've provided to your 7 Hatters out there, and uh, I know that uh, for those that are building a business,
1: uh, you just want to make sure that you can optimize it at exit. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Marvin. Let's end today with a segment of the show that I refer to as, what can we hang our hat on? And here's my takeaway. Back in 2005 as a first time entrepreneur, the term exit strategy never crossed my mind. I was completely focused on building my company and creating value. I made many decisions that would have hurt my chances of monetizing my baby. Think about it, all the late nights, the weekends, the sacrifices that we make as entrepreneurs, And imagine not being able to cash in because of lack of planning. Since I started my journey as an entrepreneur, I have faced many investors. And what I can say with certainty is that most, if not all of them, were experts in what they do and understand the game better than I did. As Marvin reminds us, if you're an entrepreneur, it's a wise decision to start early and plan ahead. You don't want to leave it to chance and lose out on your baby's full potential. I want to thank Marvin once again for joining us so that we can all benefit from his wisdom. And until next time, if you found this episode helpful, please hit that subscribe button and tell other entrepreneurs out there what value you receive from it, so we can attract even more high-quality people into our 7 Hats community. So for now, I will bid you farewell and success on your journey. And until next time, my name is Yuval Selick, and I tip my hat to you.